Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Oh, hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. Hi, I'm Jennifer Waits. Today, uh, we're going to look at one thing that affects the sound we transmit and receive over the airwaves, the Federal Communications Commission. We talk about them a lot because they have big effects, especially on radio, but also on television and the Internet as well. So uh, we have uh, Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota joining us on today's show. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining us again. Hey, great to be here. So uh, something sort of rare is happening right now in that the FCC may be in front of the Supreme Court in the near future. Tell us why might the FCC be in front of the Supreme Court? Well, the FCC is looking at uh, two cases, one dealing with media ownership and one dealing with net neutrality that are going to be in front of the Supreme Court. At least uh, appeals will be made to the Supreme Court in the next uh, 30 days. So let's start with media ownership. Uh, This is the issue which affects who owns the radio stations, TV stations uh, that that bring us our news, our music, our entertainment. And we've been on a multi-generational arc towards towards monoculture of the media. Exactly. Like uh, less and less – Concentration. More and more concentration, less and less diversity of ownership, uh, meaning meaning a whole host of uh, impacts on how our radio and television uh, sounds and works. And as we know from you, Chris, as we've been uh, covering for years now, uh, the FCC keeps trying to update its ownership rules, typically in favor of allowing more consolidation rather than less. And those rules have been challenged in court uh, by uh, by a host of uh, public interest groups led by the Prometheus Radio Project. And they've been successful in their challenge, which has been heard in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals out of Philadelphia. Um, and, and by successful, it means that that court has tossed out these changes time and time again. So with that as a background, what, what's happening now? Well, the court handed down a decision in October that overturned the FCC's 2017 Uh, reconsideration order and the FCC's 2016 uh, order, which was concluded to open ownership proceedings, as well as the FCC's minority ownership plan, which is the incubator program, which was handed down in early 2018. All of those were remanded back to the FCC The FCC and the NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters, both filed for a full panel review in the Third Circuit and uh, crowed loudly when they did. And the Third Circuit handed them in what amounts to almost record time a denial of that appeal uh, for a full panel hearing. And uh, in February... The FCC asked for asked the Supreme Court for an extension until March 19th to file uh, a challenge to the Third Circuit's ruling in the latest, the fourth Prometheus Radio Project case. And uh, both the NAB and FCC plan to ask the Supreme Court to review not only the most recent Prometheus decision, which is basically the fourth, but all of the three that are preceding it. Mm -hmm. 
And and just to you know, for folks who are not court watchers like like you and myself, um, you know what happened at the Third Circuit is normally it's a three judge panel. There's a larger panel of judges on a, a court of appeals, and the courts of appeal are a place where you appeal things, either a court judgment or or in the case of of policy, often it is uh, the work of government agencies. And initially, it's been this three court, three judge panel that has heard these FCC defenses of its ownership changes. And on this last go around back in October, uh, the FCC said, okay, enough with the three court, three judge court. We want the entire panel, all the judges who sit on the third circuit court to hear this. We want all the judges to weigh in. And they waited and said, no, our ruling stands. We agree with the agree. We agree with the, with the three judge panel. Is that effectively what, what has happened here? Yes. What's notable about it is how quickly the panel responded to the FCC's request. Those, those things can take some length of time uh, when they're filed to be ruled on. Uh, in this case, it did not take the panel very long, and they pretty much slapped the FCC down. Uh, shortly thereafter, a procedural motion, which happens in a case of a remand of an administrative agency, a mandate was issued ordering the FCC to go back to the drawing board on the Prometheus cases and the Minority Ownership Program. It's no different than what's happened the other three times. But what's different here is that the FCC has essentially said, we've lost at the Third Circuit so many times that we are never going to win. We've got we to change the metric a little bit and get the case out of the Third Circuit. They had another option, though, right, which is to... To comply. Yeah, to, to, to actually admit that they were wrong. and, and <laughs> Or they don't even have to admit they were wrong. They just have to go back. Right. I mean, the court effectively, the Third Circuit Court told the FCC, if you want to make changes, substantial changes to media ownership rules, which which the FCC is required to do on a regular interval by law, um, go back and substantiate those changes with hard stats and numbers. I mean, that's just been the story over and over and right. over again. And, so, and we live in a world where at this moment, the current stats and numbers show that the the ways that and I've learned this from Radio Survivor and Christopher Terry the way in which the FCC has allowed for media consolidation to move forward so that there's less and less owners of more and more of the media has lowered the diversity, diversity. It's, it is essentially you know it, it is it is the measures which they have proposed and this uh, is not just diversity as like a word that makes us feel a feeling no no but we're talking about diversity like of ownership which includes both who owns it there's fewer women fewer uh folks of color who own stations but on top of that um you know the, the proposition for consolidation or allowing more consolidation is that it will be economically advantageous and and they often also right. have not been able to to evidence that it's as well is that make, about right chris it's easier to make money off of a monoculture of the media, and yet, and, and yet, yet, it doesn't appear to that's, be, that's be their true. Argument, is, is, that, is yeah. that is that an okay uh, gloss on the situation, Chris? Yeah, it, it really is. And you guys made the the most important point right at the top of that is that all the FCC is being asked to do here is its job, right? The FCC has been ordered by the Third Circuit to go back and say, okay, you want to do this policy? Well, the law says you have to support that policy with empirical evidence. You can't do that, then, you know, you can't move forward. And what's interesting is that the FCC has lost on exactly the same grounds each of the four times, first in 2004, then in 2011, most recently in, in 2016 and 2019, and in late 2019. 
that, but all four of the cases read pretty much the same. Provide us some empirical evidence. Show us a working, functional policy that will enhance the number of stations that are controlled by women and minorities, and we can move along here. But the FCC has chosen repetitively to ignore the F, the, the mandates of the Third Circuit and has engaged in long periods of inaction where it's not tried to solve the problems that it's caused. So why do you think that is, Chris? Why, why are they are they just trying to find a court that's going to somehow look over that? What's going on? Well, they can't support what they've done. It's not a logical policy implementation, and it's based on a flawed conceptual premise that assumes that ownership and diversity are directly related, but that you can work on a proxy using other factors that accommodate for diversity and ownership. It's just, it's, it's, it's a mess. It's been a conceptual mess since its very beginning. And the FCC knew as early as 2003 that it wasn't working. So they've just tried to keep punting the ball down the field. <laughs> 2003. And, I just want to Well, <laughs> just in, say in real terms, in real terms, the rules that are on the books with one significant exception are the same rules that were passed as part of the 1996 Telecommunications Act. And the only really significant change that exists uh, was that the ownership limit for television stations was increased, but Congress did that on a one-off while this has been tied up in court to accommodate uh, Murdoch's uh, acquisition of the New World Communication Stations. Hmm. And it was it was an insignificant increase that really didn't change the metrics very much. But in real terms, the FCC has not done anything functionally positive on media ownership policy since 1996. Christopher, and- I... I know we're talking about the present tense, but I want to do something dangerous. I wonder if you can explain to to me uh, how did this law this this law that is now like the 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 reason why the FCC keeps losing, where where there has to be a diverse pool of owners of the media. Where did that come from? Why do we have this uh, law that to me seems like a, a good idea? It seems like um, I'm a little I'm a little concerned that there seems to be a good media law in the United States. (laughs) Well, you're operating from a false premise. There is no such law Uh that exists. Um, What there is, is a mandate by by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals to the FCC to show that that the, the law that does exist actually works. Part of the reason this has been so problematic for the FCC is that the FCC is very bad at its job. But there's actually a higher reason that it's been problematic. When the FCC engages in rulemaking, which is a thing that uh, administrative agencies do when they try to hand down rules, uh, the FCC has a unique situation in administrative law. It's an obscure passage in the Telecommunications Act called Section 202H, which puts the agency under the burden of doing something that no other agency ever has to do, which is that if it wants to even keep a rule it has, it has to develop evidence to show that the rule works. 
the way in other any other agency would have to do if it wanted to pass a new rule. Right. Isn't that like every so, two years? Isn't that what you taught us? Well, it's every four years every now. Four it years. was initially every two years, and the FCC went back to Congress and said, there's no way we can do this on a two-year basis. <laughs> it's too quick. Well, and functionally, it probably is. Um, to be fair to the FCC, it's a lot of work to accomplish in a two-year span, given the procedures that go into administrative law. But that said, uh, while I'll defend the FCC on the two-year basis, the FCC was handed uh, or started a proceeding in 2010, lost in court while that proceeding was underway in 2011, and took no action on media ownership for five years until both the industry people and the citizen petitioners led by Prometheus agreed to drag the FCC back into court in April of 2016. It was only the agreement beside between the two parties who are diametrically opposed to what they want the FCC to do to force the FCC to act that even moved us to the point that we're at now. Otherwise, the FCC would have continued to spin its wheels and ignore this process, which it largely did for five years between 2011 and 2016. So, so Professor Christopher Terry, the situation is that the various rules changes that the FCC has attempted have all been bonked by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Now the FCC, along uh, with the National Association of Broadcasters, which is the industry lobby for commercial broadcasters and non-commercial broadcasters, many of them, uh, in the United States, uh, have decided we will appeal this to the Supreme Court. Given that what they've been called on by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, what the Third Circuit Court of Appeals has found defective in their in the FCC's arguments is they have not had hard numbers to prove uh, or even uh, just simply point in the right direction, directionally justify that uh, their rules would improve diversity, especially diversity in ownership. What could they possibly be arguing in front of the Supreme Court? What What can they possibly tell the Supreme Court that would be different aside from just hope that it's a different court? Well, the the key idea is that the FCC is making a gamble here that moving it to the Supreme Court might result in a resolution of the standing remand. They can't logically win the case in front of the Supreme Court but the outcome of a Supreme Court decision might put the case back in the D.C. Circuit, which is far friendlier to the FCC than the Third Circuit. I see. So, so as it, to kind of put this in perspective for folks who, again, don't, don't watch the courts as closely as we do, normally when someone wants to contest something that happened in a, in a Washington-based uh, bureaucracy like the FCC, it's the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals that hears a lot of those cases, Correct. Yes, absolutely. So it's it it was a bit of a it's unusual. It was a bit of a of a of a gambit by the Prometheus uh, contestants who are challenging the Supreme Court uh, to, to get it, and, and and it was a bit of a win for them to get it moved to the Philadelphia, the mm. Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which also happens to be the home of Prometheus Radio Project, right? Well, Prometheus was one of many plaintiffs who filed right. against the FCC's 2003 rules. That goes to a panel that makes a drawing to determine what court ends up with it. Mm -hmm. Because Prometheus was the plaintiff in the Third Circuit and the panel picked, the multi-district panel picked the Third Circuit, Prometheus became the lead plaintiff as a result of that. That was a a bit bit of luck. 
had the case been in the D.C. Circuit, probably would have been a far different outcome. The Third Circuit and the FCC do not have a good history together. Hmm. And the D.C. Circuit, because it's a a circuit that deals a lot with administrative law, tends to be far more deferential Hmm. to agency decision-making than some of the other circuits do, especially the Third. You can imagine us. I mean, I'm making stuff up here, but you can imagine they all sort of – there's more there's more interrelationships in Washington D.C. so people know each other. Well, and also just simply the FCC is going to appear in front of the D.C. Circuit more yeah. often, right? Right. Uh, yeah, everyone knows absolutely each other more. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, part of part of the FCC's argument that they're they've sort of previewed in their early documents in their Supreme Court appeal is they believe that the Third Circuit is not giving them enough deference sure. to their decision making. Now, that's important because the dissenting judge, Judge Soraka, in the D.C. in the Third Circuit has sort of made that point each time. He hasn't necessarily agreed with what the agency has decided to do, but he does think the court has gotten in the agency's way a little bit. The court is demanding more more data and proof than than uh, maybe uh, the FCC would consider fair. Well, I don't know that that's an accurate statement. He, the, the position is, is that the courts are only supposed to make a decision on agency action to make sure that it followed the proper procedure and that it's rational uh-huh. and that they're supposed to leave the de- rest of the decision making to the agency's expertise. Judge Soraka thinks the Third Circuit has been not quite deferential enough. He's not necessarily agreed with the decisions the agency's made, but he thought he's argued that the Third Circuit might have granted them some additional discretion, the FCC, I mean. But in all cases, the court has ruled correctly, at least in terms of administrative law, that the agency is not following the the law in terms of actually generating and producing and trying to implement these rules. Right. And we know that's fairly clear uh, opinion in the Third Circuit based on the vote down of the uh, full panel appeal, the Ambach repeal, is that the no one else on the circuit necessarily feels that way. But that's the that's the crux of the FCC's initial argument in front of the Supreme Court is that the Third Circuit has not given them the leeway that they need to actually make these rules work. Now, there's not one scrap of evidence that what the FCC is, has done or tried to do will actually accomplish its goals. There's plenty of evidence that it doesn't work. And logically, their last round of uh, ownership decisions, which included exceeding the limits specified to Congress, which would be outside of the FCC's jurisdiction, uh, as part of their minority ownership program, exceeding the limits. You mean uh, exceeding the the, le- the number of stations that a given owner could could own? Is that what you mean by exceeding yeah. the limits? They, so, in some markets, the FCC would allow people to own more stations than Congress has given the FCC authority to implement. Right, and, and Congress holds the holds the keys. Congress sets right. those ultimate limits, and 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 it, by by law, right through passing a law. And and that's said in the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which is still and do in we force have, now. And do we have some media ownership laws that go back farther into the 20th century? Is that where all of this? Well, like some I'm, one of the rules that the FCC would very much like to change is actually the newspaper broadcast cross ownership rule, which is from 1975, 
Um, and the FCC engaged in some shenanigans to get that rule passed, but hasn't been able to engage in enough of them to get it repealed. So, yes, there are rules that predate the Telecommunications Act that are part of this. But in every case, the FCC has not been able to produce evidence that getting rid of a rule or modifying it in the way that they've tried to do would actually generate a positive uh, policy effect. And as such, they've lost four times in court. And I suspect that when it goes to the Supreme Court, if the court grants cert and agrees to hear the case, that they will lose again at the Supreme Court. I'm very skeptical that the Supreme Court would take the case uh I could see with Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsh, who are both administrative law nuts, uh, wanting to, you know, they're sort of pro-administrative law. They would they would like to take the case, but I don't think there's enough votes there. And the issue in front of the court is not going to be a real one that's notably ripe for review because the agency hasn't done what the court has told it to do four times, and that's why we're still here. Right. It, it, so if you suspect if they'd come back, if the FCC had come back to the Third Circuit, done some homework, and got a grade of uh, C- rather than a grade of F, or a grade of incomplete, uh, and, and the court, the Third Circuit still said, well, not good enough, we might be in a different place, except for the, you know, the place we're at is where the the FCC just has an incomplete. Keeps being told yeah. to go back and do the work, and it doesn't do it. It uh, it definitely has an incomplete. Yes, an F would actually be an advantage over where the FCC wow. is on this at this point. Well, you're listening to Radio Survivor. That's the voice of Dr. Christopher Terry, our resident expert on uh, watching the goings on at the Federal Communication Commission, which these days means that you uh, you closely observe court cases. Uh, that seems to be. Like uh, all of the action at the FCC centers around, um, especially as far as media ownership, who owns our media in the United States. And, 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 and I do want to put like I, I want I want to make sure that it's very clear that we're not getting lost in in the why does the Radio Survivor care about shenanigans? This stuff? Right, yeah. right. That why why we care about ownership. Um, you know, and, and Chris, I mean, I think, you know, I, I'm going to throw out to there, you know, I'm going to ask you this question. I mean, we care about ownership, right? Because. It, it seems to matter. It has a real effect on the information that we receive in radio and television in particular, uh, but is determined to some extent by who owns this media. And in particular, when it comes to the representation of women and minorities um, and, and whether or not a other station, communities, whether or not a station invests in in having, uh, you know, staff. Yeah. In the city that they own a piece of uh, media property, all, in. we all track this back to to ownership. That's right, localism. localism. Yeah, localism is affected greatly when you have fewer and fewer owners. Well, the production model has been for a long time to repurpose content across a regional and national level, thus reducing local air staffs and reducing local contact between the station, which is licensed to serve a community. And the owners who are trying to make the most of the programming by extending its uh, use across multiple stations and across multiple properties and across multiple markets. Those two things are in direct conflict. And it's not surprising that as a result of that, the FCC has really struggled to support this policy. And I just wanted to make sure we, 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 we tied that up with a bow so that folks understand it's not, not because we're coming at uh, it 
at, at least Rare Survivor here is if we uh, we oppose the FCC in some in some grand sort of way that we stand here as as uh, have a right. position a political no, position. It comes from our love of radio, right? And it appears uh, after watching this policy in action for two generations or so that a generation this, this is making radio worse. Exactly. Um, so, Chris, there's another uh, case uh, that the FCC may be seeing in front of the, the Supreme Court here. It has to do with, you mentioned it right at the top, with, with network neutrality, which is overall the concept that uh, we should have a free and open Internet where uh, you and I can receive information freely and send information freely without uh, any sort of significant discrimination so long as we're we're paying our uh, our access fees or New, we're paying to access yeah. the internet uh, as we do net neutrality covers three concepts the first is blocking uh, currently your ISP is allowed to block you from any content for any reason that it doesn't want you to have there's also the concept of paid prioritization. That is where uh, your ISP can charge a tax on various parties to deliver their content uh, more promptly, more speedily, give you better access to it. And then, of course, the third, the, the third uh, element of it is the throttling uh, element, where your ISP can decide that you're using too much bandwidth and slow your access to content because of that. And even when you're on a so-called unlimited plan, that, that would imply yeah. that there is no limit. <laughs> and my, well, so, as long as they disclose those practices to you, they are perfectly right. covered by in the fine print. The reason for that is, is that in 2017, the FCC passed a new set of net neutrality principles, which were the opposite of the principles that it had passed in 2015. Under Tom Wheeler in the Obama administration, the FCC finally decided after several losses in court to go with a Title II common carrier approach. That approach was challenged several times in court by U.S. Telecom. Uh, although the FCC had lost on earlier net neutrality plans uh, once against Comcast and once against Verizon, the 2015 plan, which was based on well-understood utility-style regulation, was upheld in front of the D.C. Circuit. It was upheld uh, on a full panel review at the D.C. Circuit and was denied cert at the uh, Supreme Court. So right. the rule and, and if I, if I remember correctly, Chris, you know, effectively, the, the appeals court told the FCC... If you want to have open internet rules, if you want to guarantee an open internet, you must classify the internet like a utility, like telephones, like electricity, right? And and if you do that, which is what, what Title II, when we say Title II, that's the shorthand for that, then what you want to do will be constitutional. The FCC did that. It was challenged to the, to the court, and the court said, that's right, that works, it's legit. End of story. That's exactly correct. The FCC tried to pass rules in uh, 2011 that were not uh, not Title II rules, and the court told the the DC Circuit told them if they wanted to do something on that nature, that would that Title II was the approach that would work. DC Circuit directed the FCC or sort of gave them a push in the right direction, 
after some hemming and hawing by the agency in 2015, they came up with valid rules that were then upheld by the court three times on review. But something happened in 2016. We got a new presidential administration, a new party in charge, Ajit Pais, now in charge of the FCC. He does not like the Title II rules. He handed down a set of, he and the other Republican commissioners handed down a set of rules in 2017 that overturned the FCC's uh, 2015 rules. Those rules were then challenged. The lead plaintiff in that case was Mozilla, the people who make the Firefox browser. Uh, Other parties to that lawsuit included 22 states, some public interest groups, a few edge providers. And the D.C. Circuit ruled in October that important parts of that decision by the FCC were protected by the agency's deferent, the deference to the agency under the Chevron doctrine, that the agency is allowed to make its own decisions. But the court did undermine the FCC on a couple of principles, the most important of which was that the FCC had the authority to preempt state law. Right, that was the one that, that, we, that we always uh, sort of looked askance at, where the FCC said... Um, the, under under Aji Pai ruled, we actually can't and shouldn't have a role in ensuring an open internet, but because otherwise we would do it, a state can't do it either, right? They basically said, That's, well, our hands off, we, right. we, we can't touch this. Which directly impacts, there were states that were trying to strengthen and are, neutrality. And still yeah. are. And, and that a California or a Washington state but you can't do it either. We're not going to do it. Uh, we, we don't think we were allowed to, but you're not allowed to either because if we were allowed to do it, we would do it. So, yeah, that and that's an important part of what happened in the Mozilla decision. The court didn't take a position on whether the FCC was correct in 2015 or 2017. Right. It just simply said that the FCC had the right to choose to do it or not right. do it. Yeah. But they, the court said that the FCC did not have the right to both say, we don't have the authority to do this, but we do have the authority to tell states that they can't do that. The court said it's one or the other. Right. And so now uh, Mozilla, the the other side, uh, the, the public interest side, um, they're playing to appeal this decision to the Supreme Court? Well, they got to back up a little bit. There were actually two challenges to the D.C. Circuit opinion. One requested a rehearing of the original panel, the three-judge panel. That was Digital Justice Foundation's appeal. Um, They thought that the court had misconstrued how they were arguing. So they asked for an appeal. Something that doesn't happen all that often. They asked for the same three-judge panel to rehear the case. 18 of the 22 states, Mozilla and a few of the other people, made an appeal for a full panel, an on-bank review, uh, to occur of the decision. In November, the um, both of those appeals were denied. But they were denied separately. So the uh, rehearing by the original panel was denied. The on-bank review was denied. But the court did not act immediately to uh, enforce that. 
Only recently did the court release the mandate, which ordered the FCC to con- reconsider uh, the preemption issue as well as the public safety and the ancillary issue dealing with the Lifeline program. The FCC immediately responded by uh, putting out a request for comment with the shortest possible legal timeline associated with it as part of that review. And what they're going to do is they're going to take comments for approximately 30 days, and then they're going to promulgate a new rule in response to that remand. And this but is how the me- FCC normally does business. Right? No, this, this is-, is not even close to how the well, FCC well, normally does Well, I mean, in business. principle, the that they have to propose a set of rules, they take public comment, and that public comment is ostensibly part of the process. But That's us- what I mean. It usually yeah. takes four times as long yeah, as this. Yeah, this is how usually so quick, right? Four times this long would actually be a short vacation yeah. for the FCC. Hmm. It's very clear that this FCC wants to have this wrapped up before the end of the year. So they're what, moving what's very, at very. What's happening the end of the year? Uh, well, you don't know what's going to happen at the end <laughs> of the year. You, you may have a new FCC. I mean, Ajit Pai has been at the chairmanship for four years now. Yep. Um, typically, people don't last across administrations, but yeah. also not across the same administration for two terms. That's also it's not unprecedented, but it's certainly not common. Hmm. Um. So they're moving relatively relatively quickly. But in the background, because the mandate was just issued, that starts the clock on the Supreme Court appeal. At least um, some of the states look like they would like to appeal this. Uh, Pennsylvania, California, Washington, Oregon, Montana all have uh, interstate or intrastate uh, net neutrality provisions either being debated or in, in effect in their states. So they were likely parties to this uh, decision. And then uh, Mozilla themselves has voiced some interest in sort of resolving this in front of the Supreme Court, although they have not yet filed as of uh, Friday at 347 here as we're taping this. Uh, They have not yet filed any uh, appeal to the Supreme Court. They have about 29 days left, I think. To do so. So, not surprising that they haven't. But there are multiple parties who are interested in doing so. And I suspect by the end of the month, we'll probably start to see those appeals uh, in the docket at the Supreme Court. Because, so again, bringing this back down to, to the level of our everyday lives here, from for this brief window from, from mid 2015 to 2017, uh, the internet we had uh, was freer and more open because the law policy from the Federal Communications Commission prevented an internet service provider, your Comcast, uh, your Verizon, from blocking things that you can see on the internet for whatever reason they wanted to do so, um, or providing priority access of a supplier, a, a Netflix, yeah, if you will, the, which an is the HBO. metaphor I was trying to make yeah. earlier, where where small players would would have a more difficult time getting to their customers compared to to the big boys in in media who who might be able to pay right. a higher premium. It it's also important to note that 
our internet companies now are in the intain- in the content business. They're right. they're entertainment. Comcast companies as is well. also NBC Universal, yeah. right? Uh, they are. They, we have this kind of uh, vertical alignment here that didn't exist uh, in with, with regard to the internet in particular ten years ago. So you can very easily see, and there has been examples of uh, these companies that both own the internet and the content that they privilege their own. Their own products or, over their competitors. Yeah. So that, that that that's why we we care about this, and in particular, we care we care about the very little guys, so to speak. You know, who yeah. who could be community, community media, community broadcasters, community media of all of all or, different or sorts. Just people. Yeah. So so Chris, you know, uh, at the moment, so we live we live in the more dystopian internet uh, with, without open internet rules, and and we have a holding pattern as it. We were, have a though. holding pattern of sorts as uh, the folks who first challenged the FCC's uh, abandonment of these rules uh, re- regroup and decide whether or not they're going to bring this to the Supreme Court, or try to at least. Well, I, think, I don't think there's any question there will be some challenge to the Supreme Court. Um, unlike the Prometheus case, it's not the FCC bringing the case in front of the Supreme Court. The FCC is bringing the Prometheus case. Right. The FCC was not happy with, but okay with, the larger principles in the Mozilla decision and is probably looking forward to uh, developing or promulgating some new rules to try to answer some of those remands. The public safety one uh, was a direct oversight on the FCC's part, but could be resolved with a relatively minor Mm -hmm. uh, adjustment to the rules. The Lifeline program is something that will end up in court more than once, so the FCC is not going to concern themselves with that. But being able to preempt state law is the heart of what the FCC was trying to do with the open Internet order from 2017. And uh, not winning on that point, I'm sure the FCC would like to see this back in court, but is trying to play both ends of the, the, the court by also starting a rulemaking proceeding in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Got it. So Just draw it out a little bit more. Well, it, it gives them more options. Um, right. You know, uh, I think if it were, if we were only two years into this administration, they might wait to see how it played out in court before they acted. But given that a lot could change here in 18 months in terms of who's in control of the FCC and who's in control of Congress and all those types of things, the FCC is uh, trying to move pretty quickly, uh, almost uncharacteristically quickly, to try to get some resolution to implement this 2017 order as much as they can before the end of the year. There's no reason for them to shorten the timeline the way that they did for these comments and uh, uh, other information to be entered into the docket the way they have if they weren't trying to get a rule on the books uh, before the end of the year. Yeah, and, and, and it's sort of remarkable uh, with this current uh, presidential administration that the, the FCC has had relatively constant and stable leadership for the entirety of, of nearly four years here. Uh, it, does, yeah. it is a sort of standout, uh, in whether it's a testament to uh, perhaps a perception that it's not that important or central or to... 
the the political we know abilities that the president of cares its, about television. Uh, the political abilities of its uh, of its leader, the the current chairman. I don't know, but it, it is worth noting. I, I don't really w- have a lot of meaning to ascribe to that to that uh, observation. Well, it, it's been it, it's been a relatively stable period for the commission in terms of commissioners coming and going. Yeah. Uh, even by historical standard, it's been pretty pretty straightforward. Um, and that's uh, that's true on both sides of the equation. Commissioner Clyburn left what was replaced with Commissioner Starks. Not a, a de- radical change in ideology Democrats. on that point. Yeah, and, and they were they are Democrats. Yeah, and uh, uh, Commissioner Rosenworcel has been there the, for the duration. Uh, oh, has, has commission yeah. Commissioner O'Reilly, Commissioner but- Carr came out of the staff of the person he replaced. So not. You know, it's been pretty stable as but things go. And- Christopher, Christopher Terry, is it is this a strange way for? I mean, is this a unique twenty first century feature of of media policy now that that it's all it's all just uh, stuck in the courts essentially? Like, it it seems so weird to me. This is not how how things were done in the twentieth century. Oh no the the FCC is actually a reasonably well run agency that has to spend an awful lot of time in court, and they have to the regulate around that. In fact, it's not the FCC that's to blame for a lot of the current impasses that we have. It's Congress. Hmm. Congress hasn't given the FCC clear direction for ah. going on twenty four years now in the things that it wants done, and it's kind of left the FCC to its own devices. And that's really not how administrative agencies are designed to operate. Administrative agencies are uh, sort of the errand boy in the grand bureaucracy of things. They sort of get orders from Congress or a legislative body, and then they go and implement that decision. Congress has really fallen down the ball, and net neutrality is the perfect example of this, that the Congress hasn't provided the FCC any guidance on where it wants net neutrality to be. And in fact, the guiding principle for the FCC on the internet is from the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which still treated the internet as if it were a dial-up AOL-era phone line system. Right. So as bad as the FCC has been, they're, they're not completely to blame themselves, right? Mm-hmm. They're trying to do what they've been ordered to do. They just haven't been ordered to do anything one way or the other for a very long time. Wow. So like in a lot of ways, the background of every single Radio Survivor interview with Christopher Terry on FCC court battles is the the lack of bipartisanship in the 21st century in in Congress. Well, and it's not even bipartisanship. Congress, one way or the other, even when it's been... Uh, controlled by one party or the other, hasn't given the FCC any sort of meaningful guidelines. I mean, the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which I was still an undergraduate in college when it was passed, um, is you know still the overriding principle that the FCC is operating on by this point. Things have changed a lot since 1996, and Congress needs, you know, whatever way the Congress feels... The FCC should go. They really need to provide the FCC with some additional authority or direction on the policies they want implemented, one way or the other. And so is that is it simply because it's not a priority? For we Congress? just it 
well, it's contentious and people don't like to mess with it and it's complicated and it's a lot of work and, you know, it, it causes upheavals. So they're reluctant to do anything about it. But I think part of it is, is that the people who were in Congress that did care about it, many of them are gone now, right? That that generation of people who was very interested in what the FCC did as well as how administrative agencies operated, they've been replaced by people on both sides of the aisle who care more about sort of the day-to-day flow rather than sort of the bigger picture of providing an agency with delegation to act in certain ways. We, we've lost – there's a certain wonk congressperson that's, uh, that's missing in action. Well, there's certainly less of them than there had been previously. Yeah, okay. And we got you for another couple of minutes here, uh, Professor Christopher Terry. And so one thing I did want to touch on is uh, some real world stuff here, which is that we recently saw some ownership data get released very quietly. And it's not fresh ownership data, but it's sort of the freshest we have. Um, right. Is that there's we now know a little bit more about the diversity or lack of diversity in our broadcast stations. That's true. Um, The FCC uh, released data that it collected during the 2017 and 2018 uh, year. It comes to them from a form, a form 323, that all owners of broadcast stations are required to release. And the FCC... Uh, most recent data suggests that the minority ownership situation continues to degrade from what was an already bad uh, position. Mm -hmm. Uh, The numbers are far worse than they had been uh, the previous year. Um, And this is from from 2017 to 2018, so it's already a couple years old. And and if I recall correctly... Didn't the FCC argue to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals that they couldn't actually measure diversity? Like they were like, you can't ask us to report on this. We don't know how to how to measure it at all. Did I make that up? Well, or did that really that's happen? partially correct. The FCC doesn't have a consistent measure of I that see. because the three two three style of collection is relatively new. Um, they don't have data using that methodology from before 2013. Okay. But the latest data shows that uh, women control uh, just over 5% of full-power television stations in the United States. Um, minorities control um, a little over 5% of television stations in the United States. About five and a half and seven percent, respectively, on the radio side. It's not very good, and it's it's actually slowly going down from already bad numbers in 2015. Now, this is the most recent data the FCC has, although it is currently collected data from 2019. It has not yet released this data. Mm -hmm. Notably, the FCC had to release this data, and it did so on a Friday afternoon without much fanfare at all. Right. Because it's so bad. No trumpets saying, we failed. (laughs) Because even the FCC acknowledges that that diversity is is a goal. And Well, it struck me, I I took a look at the report, Christopher, and it struck me that there was no analysis in the report (laughs) at all. 
And so it, I, I'm curious about that. It, it seemed like the burden of understanding the data really fell to the reader and, and not to the FCC. I didn't see, they didn't have a lot of charts comparing how things had changed over the course of a number of years. Why don't they, they do that? Or is well, it obvious they've only why they had, don't do that? Okay, to be fair, they, they've only used this approach uh, this would be the third time. They have data from 2013, 2015, and now 2017. They have the 2019 data, but as my understanding is it's not processed yet. It does take a while to compile all this. It's not a very good way of collecting this data. In terms of the analysis, it's the data, the numbers speak for themselves. There's not a lot to analyze here. Ownership by women and minorities is at obnoxiously low levels, for a for a policy design that is designed to increase the diversity of owners. And it's a direct result of FCC policy decisions and implementation between 1996 and now. So, you know, you don't need to say it any more than that. That's all the analysis there is to it. The question, of course, that the Third Circuit has put in front of the FCC is that, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and the FCC has not come up with anything even approaching a reasonable plan to try to rectify this situation. And so, I mean, that's where we are. And, and I, and I, I, I'm glad we get to, to kind of uh, sum up with this note because it, you know, I think one can argue, I think anyone who's been alive for the last 25 years recognizes that the diversity of, of the country as a whole, the United States as a whole has only increased. And there have been many efforts to, to have more uh, people of color, more minorities, more women in leadership roles throughout, uh, throughout the very various different types of organizations and entities in this country. Um, in part, because we understand that that sort of representation is necessary in order to build a more fair, more equitable society and promote that. And we have right in front of us, the exact opposite trend happening with our mass media, radio and television. Well, we're certainly not going in the right direction. <laughs> Twenty twenty. Well, that's where we probably have to leave it with you, Chris. I know you've got to go. I really appreciate uh, you taking some time. Christopher Terry, uh, who is a professor of media law at the University of Minnesota. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show, even if we wish you were reporting to us some better news often. Well, hopefully we'll have some better news right around the 19th. And um, I look forward to being back on shortly thereafter. Our thanks again to Dr. Christopher Terry for joining us on Radio Survivor today. I, you know, the the thing that really struck me on this uh, particular conversation with with Chris, uh, more so than others, was just the sense of, um, well, every time we talk to Chris, there more time has passed, and it really is starting to really hit home for me um, uh, where we are in in like a long term like vision of of uh of media policy that that you know now it's now we're now we're nearing 30 years of sort of um the same old story which is now its own story um and and I I'm glad we had a chance to talk to Dr. Christopher Terry about uh well why are we stuck 
And it's, well, it's Congress hasn't had the appetite to take on the problem. And that's, that's a unique uh, question to ask another guest, perhaps. It's like, where, where, where did the appetite to take on media policy uh, legislation come from in the 20th century? And where, where is, it, is it ever going to come back in the 21st well, century? And it's, got, and it's gotten even more complicated with right. the internet being part of all of that too so it it brings up so many issues that are very interesting to tackle on a pol- on a policy basis in congress so yeah I mean, it is kind of surprising and, like and at this stage in its in its uh in the decades that it's existed is the fcc the appropriate bureaucracy to oversee the internet or should there be a uh an online communications commission wow. as well as a yeah, broadcast yeah well that that that's uh but I mean, someone you know—that's a can of worms. A the we we lived in a country at one time where they built a bureaucracy to govern radio, and it in the 21st century, that's like a mind-boggling, impossible ask. Well, you would never want to build something like that. Well, no, not necessarily. I, I I wouldn't go with that because at the time, radio was all we had. There was, you know, I mean, so you have to kind of take into account uh, what exists and what doesn't, right? And yeah. so when the Federal Radio Commission was built. We pretty much only had radio. Yeah. Um, when the Federal Communications was built, not much long thereafter, you know, the, the world of communications had grown substantially through due to technology in a very short amount of time. Um, you know, it is it is remarkable, however, that the, the most significant law with regard to the internet and the regulation of the internet is now uh, twenty four years old, as old as dial up. Right, and if you measure that that. 24 years of radio, you know, uh, it, it's different. I mean, it's all we can really say. And there were definitely – this is a place where, where Matthew can come in better. Yeah. Matthew Lassar, our, our co-radio survivor, uh, who whose grip on this history is, is stronger than mine. But, you know, it's not as if uh, the government did not regulate or did not attempt to regulate radio in the years before Federal Radio Commission existed. It was just that amount of time until uh, they chose to create a bureaucracy specifically for it, you know, um, and it is true, and it is certainly true in other countries, other Western and European countries, that uh, the regulation of radio or television or internet has moved around from bureaucracy to bureaucracy. Uh, at one point, uh, much of the regulation happened in, in, in Britain uh, with the Postal Reg Authority, right? So these things do tend to move around. And you could create a, a new bureaucracy in the way that the um, – you know, we have the Department of Homeland Security, which was sort of uh, which is a creation of the of the last within the last yeah. generation. Um, it, 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 but it is it is certainly remarkable. And and it's it is I would I would say I would argue that one reason why we haven't seen a lot of traction in Congress to want to deal with media or Internet is because the the fault lines do not fall along, do not fall along party lines, that the interests of of a congressperson elected from uh, Pennsylvania or California or Washington differ from those elected from Indiana or Texas or Oregon, uh, noting that there are companies like Comcast situated in Pennsylvania, the entertainment industry in California, Amazon in Washington, and often those interests are more trenchant than party 
line uh, kind of affiliations and trying to figure out how do we square the in- these interests, which often are are actually in some kind of of uh, conflict where Google is in conflict with a Comcast, for instance. Um, I don't. Yeah, I can imagine. I can see to some extent why they why they are, are less interested in and in why right. perhaps a congressperson from uh, Kansas might feel a little out of the loop. Yeah, but and yet here the consumer at the consumer level, uh, nobody benefits from there not being rules. <laughs> well, I think, and it's tough. I mean, I'm I'm just going to reflect. It's tough for any of us to kind of see in our day-to-day life the rules it's hard for any of us to be to be working on the internet one time and go well network neutrality if right. only i had network neutrality my life would be better right this moment it, it it's a slow creep right and and it's not as if you know and, and this is what we said uh in 2017 when the fcc undid the open internet rules we didn't say it's not like the water gets turned off in your house it's not like the utility company has turned right. off your heat or your landlord is evicting you Right, it's not this sudden uh, spigot. It's it's going to be a very slow. Right. Creep. Well, we also talked in the past about why why the companies that currently have the power to 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 constrict the internet might choose to delay using that power because uh, they don't want it to be so obvious how bad it would be uh, until until things have resolved. Well, and I'm favor. not even sure that there is is as uh, thoughtful as that. So much is that it's it's a tool to be used, but. They don't have a great interest necessarily in using it, except when it can. It is most powerful and most useful, right? Um, I do want to note that uh, we did talk with Christopher back in December about what an FCC could do prospectively, looking in the positive side. How could the FCC promote diversity in a in a more diverse media ecosystem? On episode number two hundred and twenty-four, we'll have that in our show notes, where we'll have links to all the things that we've talked about today, so you can go down the rabbit hole with us at Radio Survivor dot com slash podcast this is episode number 236 as we creep forward towards our fifth anniversary of podcasting if you have any comments about the program or anything you heard about today please drop us a line we have an email at podcast at radio com. you can also get to us at social media we're on twitter and we are on facebook of course you can always listen to the show not just on your local radio station where you may be hearing us right now but you can also hear us as a podcast or right in your browser. Whether you use Stitcher, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, uh, or Spotify, or plain old Apple Podcasts, we are there. Um, and if you want to find a local affiliate that airs the program, go to radiosurvivor.com. Yeah, we here at Radio Survivor, we cover the world of radio and sound. We, we, we talk about community radio and non-commercial radio and college Radio, and as well as delving into the history, we have 100 years of radio history that we've uh, that we've just barely begun to enjoy talking about here on Radio Survivor. So check out check out our past episodes for more of the love of radio and sound. Uh, my name is Eric Klein on behalf of Jennifer Waits and Paul Reese Mandel. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. It's um, a podcast audience. It's a uh, Tomorrow will be a mini-disc day. International mini-disc day. That's right. <laughs> I never did that interview. What was your, what I, was your I, I, I know. I, I'm, I had promised I'm surprised it. it's coming up so soon because I was anticipating a big build-up to <laughs> I know. I, um, what can I say that, uh, my, uh, that all sorts of things in my life 
got in the way. I forgot that it was coming up. There's and nothing I, I hate I more than a news peg. You know, when you make radio, you're always supposed to hit yeah. the news peg or not hit the news peg. But to me, it's like, well, if you love mini discs and you want to talk about mini discs six months after International Mini Disc Day, which, which of course will be in the past now yeah. for everyone hearing this. <laughs> what was the what was the idea for the show for the International Mini Disc Day, Paul? Well, I don't know that I had a show. Oh. I would have tried to get some more information. I was going to oh. talk to the person who uh, organized it. We had some furtive email, and I said, I'll get back to you, and I didn't. Well, okay, I, this, is a, this is pulling the curtain way back. I, I don't I, – you uh, know. So it's happening it on March 7th. It happens. We are currently recording on March 6th. Well, I think we can still celebrate mini-discs. You know, I, I for one um, – for yeah, I am, I am of the mini-disc generation more than anything else, like – my my time as a media producer and creator really you know i would say that um you know the the first year of my of moving out of my parents house was also the first uh you know year that i owned a mini disc player uh back when you still needed to record them into your computer in real time you didn't get to transfer the data over any sort of usb cable um you know, and you did so because it sounded better than the cassette that you would have been yeah, forced to use I mean, really, just years, a few years prior. Mini discs existed, coincided with computers doing audio, but in a lot of ways, you would use them as to hold on to audio outside of a computer. I it was like even, a tape, only yeah, it was digital. I wouldn't even edit my mini discs on a computer most times. Like I, that wasn't until I got to a radio station that that became the norm. That we needed to to dump our audio from the mini disc to the. So computer. let's talk about what mini disc day is uh, for a moment, just so we set the scene. And and it's intended to be like record store day, or like cassette and who's store behind day. It? Uh, people, <laughs> people who love mini discs. <laughs> Sorry, people. Uh, you know, uh, as I told you, I didn't do the interview, so I don't have the all the information. So we can be brief. But I can in tell you what I know. Yeah. Right, is that there are twenty eight record labels who've who've agreed uh, to release fifty four different albums, all on mini disc. This is funny because this is never this has never been my mini disc experience. Well, I've no. never been a consumer of professional music because it never really was part of the mini yeah. disc experience. Yeah. And that was part of. I my, was just I'm part a CD person through and through, with a little bit of cassettes and a little bit of vinyl, and a little bit of MP3 uh, downloading. Like, but for mini discs, for me was the um, was was my time to produce my own sounds and to to hold them, you know, in a in a stable. Uh, environment, you know, offline environment to have to have a series of of uh, physical media that were the collection of my sounds, which I still have. Now I have these twenty five year old sounds held in a digital uh, physical media. That that's my mini disc collection. Well, and my and my mini disc experience is using them at my radio station. Because that's where we had all of our legal IDs and our promos yeah. and underwriting. Everything was recorded on minidisc. The digital and cart kind of, system, really. Yeah. yeah, it replaced the carts that we used to have, which were more like eight tracks. And in anticipation of having a computer that you just click yeah. a button and play off of. Yeah, and, and KFJC, where I DJ, used minidisc for years, longer than a lot of places. And eventually replaced replaced the minidisc with a... Uh, a little hard drive that 
that houses right. things. Right. Yeah. As as computer audio became more inexpensive and practical. I mean, the mini disc was 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 introduced in 1992. Wow. So we have to think about you know in 19, which is four years before the Telecommunications Act of 1996. <laughs> Let me just put this out. That that, that probably. The reporters in the room when that was passed who were working for uh, many radio stations, at least a few of them had mini-disc yeah. recorders. Oh, hell yeah. The, the, the NPR guys had expensive uh, digital audio tape recorders, I'm certain. Um, but it's hard for folks you know, to, to remember, never mind for folks who weren't alive then, um, that in 1992, you know, for the average person, if you recorded audio, you did so – on a on on an audio cassette, yeah, that cassettes. was the, the the principal way you would do it. Whether it's a micro cassette or a full size cassette, um, so it was analog. It has many issues. It it's difficult, if near impossible, to edit on its own. Yeah. So people, in terms of editing audio, would have to do it on big reel to reel recorders, which were seen in in many broadcast stations or in in studios, but weren't tended not to be anything people had at home. And because they were sort of falling out of favor, we really had this period in like the late 80s into the early 90s when, um, you know, in terms of editing your own audio, it was hard to do. And so in 1992, basically Sony intended to replace the cassette. What they had hoped is that this technology would become the new digital cassette. And with the idea that it's a disc, so that it's much more, and not a, it's not a magnetic disc like a floppy disc. It's actually it's looks a tiny like a little CD. little CD, but it's an entirely different technology. Oh, neat! That is actually more robust. That that is that will that is arguably will last longer than any CDR. My favorite thing of the tiny CD mini disc uh, tech physical media is the the plastic case, right? Which, which also is helps own, protect it. Yeah, its own. You know, mini discs have a, a sleeve that you could throw them into, but in essentially, it's that if you've ever uh, had the opportunity to hold a hard, the 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 mini version of the floppy disk, you know, the '90s floppy disk had a plastic three and a half inch case, yes. yeah. yeah, and so it's protected. You know, right, that's, that's my and so and so. You know, it was introduced, but at the time, like a I- VHS tape, your tape is not exposed to the. Uh, to the fingers and and you know desktops and other ways that things can get scratched and, and scuffed. Yeah, and at the time, it was not easy to have a computer edit audio. Right. Okay. So if you owned a, a computer, any laptop in the world, you, know, you know, wouldn't love maybe audio if at all. if you had a Macintosh, it probably in 1992 you might have had a model yeah. that had a microphone jack and and a speaker. However. You'd have to you, – sound cards were a thing. Well, no. You'd probably had these things. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. However, it would it would have recorded and played back audio at a significantly lower quality than yeah. CD. And this was really important to me as a radio producer at the It time wouldn't have been usable for radio. Because uh, this was when, – when I worked at Free Speech Radio News in the early 2000s, we were still definitely in a mini-disc – Era, especially because a lot of our reporters were lower income people all around the globe, including the United States, who would have been using, you know, wouldn't have been using cutting edge uh, multi thousand dollar technology. They'd be using more affordable technology. So we really lived in a. And you could buy a recorder then for about $200. We lived in a mini disc to computer. Yes, that was the sweet spot of Free Speech Radio news in the early 2000s. But uh, so the reason I'm going back to this history, I, I'm trying to kind of put this in stark relief here, yeah. right? Is that Sony intended this to be the 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 replacement to the yeah. analog cassette, and 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 in, and in, at those early days, 
there were they were selling pre-recorded records on 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 mini disc. Yeah. So Sony was was actively trying to promote the mini disc, and as well uh, releasing new primarily Sony music label artists on on mini disc. Um, but you have to also note that 1992 was a period in which the newly predominant music format was the compact disc yeah. itself, a digital, a digital thing, good enough on a larger disc. Yeah. Yeah, definitely good enough, and 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 in fact, the mini disc there's no is not superior to a compact disc in any which way, except for that it doesn't get scuffed. Right, except for the fact that it was protected inside and slightly this thing. smaller and and smaller. So in it's not slightly so in 1992, much. you could buy an, a few albums on mini disc. Yes, uh, you could LP, for, for quite a few CD, years. Yeah, mm-hmm. cassette probably. Yeah. yes, the golden A-track, age of physical media. A track, A track was pretty much done. So there were maybe some, and and it's unlikely anything that was available on a track would have been available on mini disc. There was probably no Venn diagram in yeah. which those overlapped. You would have bought an a yeah. track probably at like a truck stop on I eighty in Nebraska. Um, but uh, you know, so when were um, what was the lifespan? When were mini disc? When was Sony releasing albums on mini disc? What era? How many years? <sighs> I don't know the exact boundaries of it, but I know that by about 2000, it was done. I, I, I off the top of my head, I don't have the research in front of me. I don't know when. So interesting. I had no idea there oh, were albums. Oh, I own, on some, I own some. Yeah, I own some. So I have a Frank Zappa album. I had a big audio dynamite album. Um, wow. You know, and, I mean, and you'll see them on eBay. They trade for quite a bit of that's money. That's really now. funny. For me, for mini discs, in addition to creating my own sounds, being a radio you know, a, a, a low budget radio producer, community radio producer in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, it's also a really nice, um, uh, mixtape medium. Right. Well, so that was, yeah. What eventually happened, right. Is that people didn't want to buy albums because, uh, from the very beginning, a mini disc allowed you to record digitally from a CD right onto it. Yeah. So you could basically get as perfect of a copy as at that time because the CDR had yet to be invented. Right. <laughs> the ability to take a CD home and copy it on your computer did not exist through most of the nineties. It yeah. wasn't really practical until like the late nineties. And even then uh, blank CDRs cost more than uh, a new compact disc did. And even by then a mini disc was a dollar. So, right. It, it, it ultimately, what what be, what came out of the wash is that it was going to be the the replacement for the cassette, but as a home recording medium, and and it was actually successful. People often think of it as a, as, a, as a tremendous failure in hindsight, but I mean, it, it, in fact, uh, it's an invaluable part. Millions of, my of them were sold. It's just that there were you know only so many people who were interested in doing their own recording. Yeah, to be a radio producer or some kind of sound artist or some or kind somebody of... way into mixtapes yeah. to the extent to which a cassette was 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 not as good. And then we can't take out, you know, we can't forget the fact that the compact disc, the CDR would happen then by the late 90s. Yeah. The MP3 players happening by the early 2000s. We have all this digital music and right. whatever. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you the year I can probably go back into my email and, and tell you the exact year that I switched from, you know, my the, my second mini disc as a radio producer to my first, um, you know, there's still no good word for that. Digital audio recorder. Digital audio recorder. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you exactly. My first Zoom. 2008. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. That was for me. I'm telling right. you, for me, 2008 is when I got my first Zoom recorder, somewhat reluctantly, because I felt like I was cheating on Minidisc. Yeah. Um, because it had served me so well. well. And, and at some, my second generation Minidisc that I owned, because I owned two in my radio career, uh, had the ability to digitally transfer the audio to your computer. You no longer had to do it in real time, but you did need to have. Um, proprietary Sony software installed on your computer. So it was still, there was still a hurdle. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, it was not simply as easy as, as it's become. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, like the existence of these digital auto recorders and all of that is in alignment with the, the, the existence, existence of this prior technology. Like the, the fact that recordable mini disc, because it was like, it was, Rare. They had good microphones. They they were good quality. The fact that those existed and were popular and used demonstrated there was a market for the next innovation. Yeah. I think that that might have been slower to come. Um, it might have happened more professionally rather than at a level at which you could afford for a few hundred bucks rather than several thousand dollars. Because prior to the mini disc, if you wanted to do digital field recording, you used. Uh, a digital audio tape recorder, which would cost several right. thousand dollars, or even even a high quality cassette recorder that cost, a, that a radio reporter would yeah, want to right. be using. They were they were like five hundred to a thousand. Documentary filmmakers would be using regular cassettes, but their their machine would be much heavier duty. Yeah, no, absolutely. Pretty. But it, but it, what's funny about this inner this mini disc day that of course I've not gotten to the bottom to. <laughs> it's a long way of saying it, is that uh, right that it's highlighting releasing music on it rather than. Which yeah. was never really it, and, and maybe there were. I mean, I don't know, and I'd love to hear from listeners. Were, do you, did you know about record labels, like it, like not not Sony, but like you know independent labels uh, doing like CD like uh, mini disc releases? Because it was definitely right. There was the cassette underground kind of of the eighties into the nineties where people were releasing home you know cassette labels yeah. because it was the cheapest easiest way to release and music. beyond in the early 2000s too. and then cdr labels were a thing in the 90s and before uh you know easy mp3 distribution became a reality on the internet yeah there were cdr labels which basically adopted cdrs in the same way they would have adopted cassettes to to send things out and those still exist as well was there a mini disc label because the thing is is that it seems to me there would probably never been that critical mass of people with Mini disc players, even though millions were sold, that there are of cassette or even at, in, in the yeah. 90s record players and certainly not CD players that you could take it for granted that you would have this ready audience. And, you know, if I if I might, it's, it's I, we're now we're in a time where, um, you know, uh, my 14 year old uh, highly, uh, highly online media consuming uh, son uh, built a machine with no disk drive it's like why would i do that why would i want there to be a cd drive on my computer what a waste of time and energy so we've are it's and yet you know but maybe uh there is a kid who's you know seven eight years older than your son who is you know now realizing oh wait uh this thing exists this other thing and maybe now it's time to get into it, I don't. I don't know. It's it's interesting, and certainly it, it appears to me that all of the the folks behind Mini Disc Day are young and yeah. probably you know How funny. did not use Mini Disc at the time that it's that it was popular. And as far as I know, um, I'm not sure anyone's making a deck anymore or making a player like you would yeah, have to have buy to get a used, used one. one. I 
it does appear that Sony Japan still makes blank media. Yeah. Wow. Or at least has a warehouse full of it that they're selling <laughs> as new. Right. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's a it's a fascinating sort of development, and and certainly, I mean, you know, it, it hints a little bit of technological fetish, but I don't mean that as a criticism. Yeah, I mean, for me, my love of mini discs is that I have a I have a certain number of hours of personal sound archives that are held on this medium, and I can go back to that sound archive, which you know is. Uh, me and my friends playing music, sounds of you know nature recordings that I made, you know, and they are the durable. Be- the beginnings of my radio career. I have it's all there. I think in the course of using, you know, I got my first mini disc player around about 1997. Yeah, so that that is uh, 23 years ago. I don't have that one any longer. I think a total of maybe two, possibly three discs were every ruined in that time. And I'm not sure that they were ruined due to like physical um yeah. uh dis- destruction so much as uh perhaps me being dumb. The only drawback with mini discs and I have to say that digital audio recorders have the same problem is that if your batteries die you lose the entire interview. And tapes if the batteries die you just hear the interview get very uh yeah, but uh, but uh, but same thing. <laughs> but the same thing for uh, for digital audio recording. Exactly. So it's not even it's it's a flaw in the medium that's not that hasn't even been solved for yet. That you have to press stop in order to save your file, no yeah, matter. So well. an hour long, two hour long interview could be lost in the ether. But my argument is that had you all that audio that, that your archive your on a hard drive, yeah. and only a hard drive. There's a very decent chance you wouldn't still have. You'd have it. to make four backups and mail right. them to different. But you uh, have a PO better boxes. than ninety percent chance yeah. that any one of those mini discs right now you could pop it into a player. The only problem will be finding a working player. Yeah. Unless someone decides well, to make new ones. Happy mini disc day, everybody! So, Thank so you for Jennifer, indulging me. Jennifer, you you never owned a player. You just used them as a, as a radio DJ. Yeah, I just used them as a, a you know a tool of the trade. Mm-hmm. So. But it was something that, you know, KFJC fully embraced mm-hmm. the utility yes. of the mini disc and and held on to them and used them for longer than probably most radio stations. I think that's that was very common in community radio because in it was the- very practical. You could record over. Um, they were much, you know, much more reliable than the old carts. And where- if one broke, you could go down to like Best Buy. <laughs> Right. Where's where are you going to get a cart machine? You can't walk into Walmart and get a cart machine, but you could, you know, in, in the days before an Amazon dot com one day delivery, you could walk into a Best Buy and buy a new deck if you just absolutely had to that day. You know, which, you know, and, and we use them in community radio in, in part to uh, record things off of our satellite. Right. We had satellite rec- programming that came from Pacifica and other sources. Um and we, it was someone's job to set up the recorder every day and set a timer, and it would record it. And then, because you could edit on the disc itself, they they trim the ends, yeah. and sometimes edit things out when we were during pledge drive, so we could fit in an extra five minutes Ooh. of pitching. All, all in, all in this machine, yeah. Because I mean, really, we before recording on computers, yeah, before computers were even available to do it, you had a little tiny, affordable way yeah. to digitally edit. And, and so your your NPR affiliate might have had, 
you know, $30,000 of gear it bought with a grant from the Corporation of Public Broadcasting to do the same thing with computers yeah. at the time. And with that, that, that your KFJC or your WEFT had replaced with, you know, a few hundred, few, maybe a couple thousand dollars worth of decks and discs. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Well, and to add to that, um, you know, when we were using mini discs, you know, to play our recorded legal IDs, et cetera, uh, we were still creating that production mm-hmm. on a computer. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> so right. We and you at- dub it off to the disc. I did that, too, in the in the wow. hybrid era. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, probably in the early days, we were we were using reel-to-reel and then and then putting it on mini disc or cart maybe. Um, but, but yeah, in the later years of using mini discs for our recorded IDs, we were still doing the editing in the studio That's on computers. We would edit on one mini disc and dub it to another one. Jeez, Louise. interesting. Yeah, in real time, real time dubbing. Yeah, just like it. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, people forget that in computer editing for for media is less than twenty in a real practical way. Right is less than 20 years old that until that that you know videotape was edited in real time slower than real time right audio tape was edited slower than real time and when you needed to make a copy you made that copy at least you know for the purposes of editing and production like that you made all of that in real time you did a whole lot of waiting around and getting a cup of coffee, but still sitting there watching it because yeah. you knew if you left for too well, long, it was going to jam and, and everything that, would go to hell. Not to be a grandpa about this, but like <laughs> I think that there's a certain um, – I'm certainly lucky at this stage in my in my radio producer career to have had that opportunity to have to sit still and listen to the tape. That it was – it's a luxury to, to record a whole interview of some kind and then not ever have to listen to it to – to send it off to its audience yeah, and, and to have to, you know, to, to record something and then to be, you know, to be uh, in a position that you would have to listen to it as you recorded it is you recorded it into your second device that gave you a second opportunity to log the footage. And then you would have a third opportunity to edit, you know, that's the, the, the way that the tools have come along to speed up the production process has, um, sort of uh, lowered the amount of effort it takes to finish your piece of radio. And I'm not entirely sure that everyone has benefited from that speeding up of the work. But, you know, here we are. It's a here fun... we are. We all take advantage but this of is it. Why and we I love... don't wish to turn back the clock. No, not at all. But it's, it's, it's just fun to, um, you know, we, we're getting farther and farther down the line where the physicality of the media recording and creation is sort of disappearing into the ether but that doesn't mean it's not still physically somewhere or that we don't still depend on the physical tools to produce it we're not at a point where we can just uh think about producing radio and have it materialize uh for our audience we still need physical tools but as we get more as the physical tool just becomes one machine like i think it's useful to romanticize in a practical way, the tools that we used to have and how they how they impacted our creative process. I I still love my mini disc player. There we go. Perhaps well, and you know, I, Paul, I really hope that you do talk to the people yeah. behind Mini Disc Day because as I'm as I'm looking at their website, I'm I'm thinking about everything that Eric is saying right now too. And um, you know, there are mini disc only releases getting getting issued for Mini Disc Day, and 
just poking around, I'm noticing that some of these artists also have releases on cassette and on eight track. And I, I start to wonder if, if the people buying these albums are listening or if they're just collecting. (laughs) I mean, I think that's the question everybody has these days about not just, uh, uh, an eight track, but vinyl as well. I mean, there's many reports of folks because that's why, you know, most new vinyl releases come with download codes so that you can instantaneously have the MP3s for your smartphone. They're still listening on their phone, but they love to, hold, you know, they have that vinyl for a special or occasion they, at home. For, yeah, exactly. I mean, and. Uh, or if some of these, you know, some of these may not even. I wonder if, um, if some of them are eschewing the digital version and the digital download code. I think that would be actually really exciting. I, I suspect they are, yeah. And and, and, and and I think we have to to keep in mind that these are tiny, tiny, tiny releases. Yeah, it's indie. It's indie it stuff. It is super indie, right? Yeah. This isn't even this isn't like Fugazi indie. I you know this is, you know, uh hundred tapes in the mail indie. As a podcaster, right. I think it's safe to to chit chat about this. I've recently become uh, more involved in my local music scene than I was last year. I, get, I actually have gone to shows and seen some things and done some stuff. And uh, the the shows that I'm seeing in Portland, Oregon, are the the musicians are putting out their their music on cassettes. I have purchased yeah. cassettes <laughs> in at out in the world, um, and it's a really uh, it is a nice way to hold on to physical media. And to be reminded, because there is an object in my home, of my uh, fondness for the artist. You know, in a way that last week's song that I liked on on the internet is only as close as my memory, which is, you know, very shaky in these uh, troubled times. But to have a physical cassette, you know, and to see the hand-painted label and... uh, and to hold on to it and put it into the machine, uh, you know, there's a it there's a it's a manifestation of my fandom that is still worth um, you know still worth reproducing. It's a, it's a cool way to to like music in 2020. Yeah, agreed. Well, maybe I'll make some mini disc art tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, Paul taught me. You know, you learned it from a YouTuber. The um, one of the coolest ways to use the mini disc as an artist is that you can uh, slice up your recording and all sorts of, you know, all you have to do is press a button as you're, as you're re-listening to the track that will now slice your recording into new slices, which is a, very similar to how you would click the slice button on your, uh, yeah. on your, rec- on a, on a audio editor on the computer. But now, now your, your track is all sliced up in a new way and then you can shuffle you can press, yeah, shuffle, and it's all randomized. Which is, you know, a couple and, of YouTubers. depending on and, how, how precise or imprecise you want to be with your cuts, yeah. right? Things can get more glitchy, or you can put things in new context. Um, yeah, you know, and it and, and, and I figured out you, you can do that with most digital audio recorders as well. Uh, they mostly will, will let you do all those things. It's just not as much fun. Yeah, well, and you you know you might be using your computer for something else, or you might have just left your. No, I mean you could do it right on the recorder itself, like a Zoom recorder. Right. You could actually splice everything and then set it to random. You could do you could do all the operations on the recorder itself. It does work. I've done it. I tried it. Just to random. See. I have to go look at my yeah. Zoom to see if I have a random button. It does for playback. Yeah, but it's it's buried in a menu. Well, it's radio- not like a button <laughs> like it is on oh, a mini right. disc 
it's buried in a menu. It's on I'll there. Take, I've done I'll it with all my Zoom recorders, menu. but um, it wasn't as much fun as doing it on the mini disc. So, uh, so uh, look out, whatever that means. All right. I hope I hope you're all as excited about mini discs as yeah. we are. <laughs> Thanks again for sticking with us for some extra minutes of mini disc and physical media reminiscences. Yeah. Reminiscences. It's a different podcast, but it's the same podcast. Tell us about your mini disc experience. We'd yeah. love to hear it. And I, we, I would love to have them on the show or have you have folks tell us them. Uh, you could send us an audio file. You could send us something that we can publish on the website. Love to hear from you. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com. 